You're listening to MedEx, the Medical Extrusion Podcast. Presented by U.S. Extruders. Extrude with confidence. Custom extrusion equipment designed for you and your application. Welcome back to the MedEx Podcast. I'm Steve Maxson. Today we're talking about medical extrusion, and our guest is Norbert Ansi. R&D manager at High Performance Medical Solutions, a proterial cable America company. The High Performance Medical Solutions division is an ISO 13485 compliant manufacturer of components and finished medical devices for OEMs worldwide. Before we get into the technical conversation about medical extrusion, Rain DePaul Vice President of Corporate Marketing at Proterial Cable America, has joined us to talk about the recent rebranding of Hitachi Cable America. Rain, thanks for joining us today to give our listeners the news about your recent rebranding efforts. Thank you for having me. This is my first podcast experience. So um, Hitachi Metals, which is actually the parent company of Hitachi Cable America, was acquired by Bain Capital, which is private equity, back in January 2023. So decades ago, we were initially founded as High Tech Profiles, which was and still is machining and fabrication services. um, And that's still within our plant in Ashaway, Rhode Island. Um, In the late 2000s, we began investing in the medical space. We were offering precision and tight tolerance plastic extrusion for top 20 med tech OEMs. And you would have probably known us back then as HTP Meds. We were growing with OEM partners in the plastic value stream. We were able to add capabilities and supply impact for critical devices and apparently somehow gained interest from Hitachi as like a merger acquisition bolt-on for a wire and cable business out of um, Manchester, New Hampshire. So Hitachi ended up acquiring HTP Meds in 2016 and it placed us under the umbrella of Hitachi companies. So flash forward to today, we've officially rebranded from Hitachi HPMS to Proterial High Performance Medical Solutions, HPMS. Um, And we're dedicated to the specialized plastics healthcare industry. So we've committed to double digit growth this year. And with Bain as our backer, we're able to have access to their expertise and their capital investing, which is really allowing us to accelerate transformational growth and we'd like to thank our customers and our partners for you know, working through the paperwork changes as we go through the rebranding efforts. And we're really looking forward to continuing our partnership um, just as Proterial. Great. I, having been involved in a rebranding, I know how much time and effort goes into it. And uh, it's a really rewarding process. So I'm sure that you found that as well. Definitely. Yeah, it's been great. Excellent. Thanks so much, Rain. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Norb, thanks for carving out some time to join us on the MedEx podcast today. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I missed you in Anaheim. I was hoping to make it down there, but I, I had to switch my plans at the last minute. Okay, no problem. We'll, we'll get you there next time. It was a good show, by the way. A lot of people. Norbert, let's start with one of my favorite topics and perhaps yours as well, and that's multi-lumen extrusions. But before we do that, please give our listeners a high-level view of your multi-lumen extrusion capabilities. All right. So yeah, here at Proterio, multi-lumen extrusion is really our specialty. And we get questions all the time. Oh, what's the most number of lumens you can do or layers or, you know, just those kind of generic questions. And 
the answer is normally, well, it all depends. Um, cause they're depending on the materials, there really isn't any limit to the designs and configurations, you know, that are possible and customers come up with new ones all the time that we see. But I, I would say, you know, the majority of the stuff you see is four lumens or less that makes up a, a bulk of the work that we're doing here. But, you know, we, we do see more, more lumens, 10 or more. And those can be different as well. Usually it's something like a, a round tube with a round lumen in the middle, evenly spaced round lumens around the outside. But, you know, that's not always the case. So they can be more complex as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think you can probably load up the number of lumens when you have a central lumen with symmetrical auxiliary lumens. The real challenge is, you know, when you have asymmetrical profiles with thinner, different wall thicknesses and you're dealing with different flows and, and then throw in some kind of oblong shapes or different geometries and then you start to get complicated. Yeah, we, I mean, we can do all that. It, you know, uniform wall is ideal. It's not always the case. And obviously round geometry is, is, is good as well. Because otherwise, when you get these oblong shapes, you know, the tooling gets more complicated, which, you know, longer to build, more expensive. You know, it is, it is possible though. We, we see that all the time and it, it's really just whatever the customer is looking for. Yeah. I remember working with a common friend, remember Tyler Ware, him developing a, a complex multi-lumen double D and some, you know, complex shapes. And by the time he iterated the tool, it basically disintegrated. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you get to rev yeah. A, B, C, you know, end up at F sometimes. It can be a long process. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about uh, combining multi-lumen extrusion with bump or taper capabilities. Yeah. So we, we see a lot of both those things and occasionally it, they are combined. I can think of one example. It was a seven lumen that we did not long ago. It had a central lumen that was not round and all the, the other six lumens were spread around the outside and they were essentially like kidney bean shaped. Mm -hmm. And then we, you combine the, that multi-lumen geometry with, you know, a lot of, or not a lot, but six external stripes. And then, you know, after a few iterations, then the customer was wondering, oh, could we actually do this as a bump tube? So next thing you know, you're combining a, a number of different technologies or extrusion techniques, and you have a really complex product. Speaking of combining, are there cases where you're doing a, a multi-lumen with multi-layer, multi-layers? Yeah, we, we see that where, you know, a lot of times you see it, it'll be a stripe, the, it, it could be a multi-layer, but you know, most multi-layers are your typical co-extrusion with just a single lumen, you know, two layer or three layer, mm -hmm. or you see a single lumens with stripes or multi-lumens with stripes, you know, and you could do any, any number of designs and you know we've seen one you know three four six stripe hmm. sometimes the stripes on the surface sometimes it's embedded in the wall sometimes it's like through the entire wall and that's usually called a window stripe mm -hmm. or a through through wall stripe you know and sometimes they want you know we worked on one product where they had half the tube was one material half the tube was another and it was a multi-lumen you know all that's possible but it's it all comes down to having the right tooling. Okay. So it's not always a radio opaque stripe. It's for other purposes. Yeah. Some, yes. 
radio pig is the most common, but sometimes it could be a clear stripe, like I, I mentioned with the window stripe, where they're trying to see into it for some reason. Okay. Or it could be, you know, we do one product where the stripe is actually a, a indicator on the outside for the orientation of the tube, whether it's for their their assembly or for some, some other operations that are done to the tube. It's like a a visual indicator without having to look at the end of the tube and figure out which way it's turned. Interesting. You know, multi-lumen extrusion is similar to profile and extrusion in that ideally you need to have the ability to fabricate machine tooling in-house to support multiple iterations and to support quick turn. Tell us a little bit about your EDM and CNC capabilities in-house. Yeah, Steve, like you said, I think it's absolutely needed if you're, you're going to try to do medical extrusion. You got to be able to, you know, either make your own tooling or modify it. You have to have at least some capability. And, you know, here at Proterial, we got an entire machine shop and there's a portion of this machine shop dedicated to our extrusion tooling and supporting the, you know, the medical tubing side of it. Um, but, they, you know, they have all the equipment that you could need to, to make the tooling like CNC lathes, mills, you know, wire EDM is a big one. There's a lot of inspection equipment that you need. We have, you know, optical measurement as well as CMM. Yeah. So it's a, it's really important if you're, you're going to try to do any of these custom shapes because it's, you know, the lead times can be long. And if you, you know, not to mention if you're wasting time setting something up and then having to tear it down, waiting for, yeah. for modifications. So, you know, we're doing it in the same building. Right. Good point. And you certainly can't wait or rely on the, you know, the tooling OEMs to, to develop multi-lumen tubing and maybe get your first iteration, send them the tool. And then a couple of weeks, maybe month later, get a tool. You need to be able to turn it around within hours, I suspect, suspect, right? Yeah. For, for us, I mean, we can, you know, we'll pull the tooling, we can have the machine just drooling, you know, and it could be as easy quick as an hour or, you know, it might say the guy in the machine shop might say, Hey, after lunch, I'll have it ready for you. So in the same day, we're turning it around and, you know, not even have to purge or, yeah. or reset up or move on to another job. And then you could trying to get back into the original job, which is not the best way to do things. Right. I know that you've developed your own, not only tooling, but your own crosshead assembly. So I guess it, your fabrication and machining capabilities go beyond tooling for extrusion and secondary operations such as tipping, but in some cases you design your own die heads, multi-layer die heads. Tell us a little bit about that capability. Yeah, most of the stuff we do fits in like your standard head. We have really two sizes. We use the larger one-inch die and down and the, the smaller half-inch die and down. And most of the tooling we make will just fit in that head and almost all the setups will, will utilize that. But in some cases we, we have to make different, different deflector with a high, high flow, you know, channels or low flow, or, you know, sometimes it's just the conventional stuff doesn't work. So we end up, we'll even make an entire crosshead custom for a certain, for example, we had a co-extrusion we were working on and the, the inner layer had this additive that raised the melting temperature quite a bit. And we ended up you know, it would burn, you, you would, could only run for a short time. And then the inside layer would burn based on the, the, the increased temperature. So, you know, we developed a custom deflector for that job that 
you know, had the right flow rates to, to maximize the amount of time we could run without burning. Interesting. Norbert, beyond the traditional materials used for minimally invasive applications, your polyurethanes, PBACs, TPU, polyolefins, do you get involved with any high performance, high temperature materials such as peak? Yeah, we get requests for all kinds of high temperature, high performance materials, but, but peak is by far the most popular by a, by a landslide, I would say. And specifically, we see a lot of requests for the, the Victrex 381 and the 450G. Those are, they seem to be widely used. So we're, you know, we're using, running those all the time. And I know years ago, you know, when I started there, we didn't do a whole lot of peak, you know, every once in a while we might run it. But these days, if you go down in the shop, we're pretty much almost any day you go down there, we'd be running peak. Is that from a size range of small micro extrusions of peak and, and larger? Give us an idea of the kind of the range, if there's anything unique in the size range, wall thickness range, or any secondary operations maybe also for value added. Yeah, we do, you know, the, a full size range. You see everything from the small, you know, we do a, a 22 thousandths by, I think it's 17 thousand and that gets some secondary operations because they, they get trimmed into short pieces. You know, we do your, your typical, you know, 10 thousandths wall and that, and that sort of thing all right up through the, the normal size ranges. And at the, the larger end of the spec, which is actually probably more challenging than the, the smaller end is we do one all the way up to a half inch OD by a three sixteenths ID. So, so that's a, a very large thick wall for something like peak. And some, some of them now, the secondary op, ops have been coming up, coming around. There's one in particular where we had a request to do some tipping and our machine couldn't even do the high temperature that peak requires. So we had to have the, the tipping machine upgraded and then, you know, the, you know, we got the tooling and we did that some thermoforming to shape it into a kind of a U shape with a, a funny angle. And then that was one of the first secondary operations we had to do with peak. And we've had a, a couple more since then. We actually have one now that's should be going through validation shortly and hopefully it, it, everything goes well. Is, is it always a, a crystalline peak or is there, are there ever any requests for amorphous peaks? peak tubing because maybe they don't need the full physical properties of crystalline peak. Yeah. We've, we've seen requests both ways and depending on the wall thickness, it, you know, sometimes you can do it both ways. Certain, certain times you, it's, it's more difficult to get, to get it to cool. Right. You know, cause you get to deal with air cooling and water cooling and it, it can be pretty difficult. And you know, some of the customers actually don't, don't request which is always nice because you can kind of pick the manufacturing method that, that you want. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some of them, when you get to the, the thicker wall, you'll actually extrude it and it'll, it'll almost look like a two layer where, you know, the outside cooled quicker and the inside cooled slower. So, you know, you get a layer of the amorphous and a layer of the crystalline. So it, you know, obviously that's not what the customer's looking for, but those are all hurdles that you have to deal with when you're working with peak. Are, are any of those situations where you have to kind of do a secondary process to get full crystallinity annealing of such? Yeah, that that's a process that exists. Ideally, anytime you can avoid doing any secondary processing, that's the way to go. 
Right. Understood. Let's shift our gears to high pressure braided tubing. And I know you have a separate operation in Connecticut dedicated to high pressure braided tubing. And there's an interesting story behind how you got involved in that business. And for those that are not familiar, high pressure braided tubing is a high volume component in MedTech and it's used for balloon inflation devices, aspiration devices, and devices to deliver contrast media. I know there's a, a pretty cool story, Norbert, that you were involved with and how you went from basically producing no volume of high pressure braided tubing to producing, you know, millions of feet a week. So share, share with our listeners that story and, and just also for some background and maybe you can go on to a little bit more about the makeup of high pressure braided tubing, what it's comprised of. I know it's polyurethane with a reinforcement. If you can kind of share that first and then tell us a little bit how you got into that business at the very beginning. Yeah. So the, the, you know, there's a lot of braided tubing, you know, some of it has, you know, stainless braid or different liners, but when we talk about high pressure braided tubing, we're really talking of two layers of a TPU usually, and there's a, a nylon monofilament braid layer in the middle. So that that's what we're, we're talking about. It's could be for contrast injection or different things, but essentially for us, we got into braided tubing uh, probably around 2011, 2012. At that time, we weren't making any braided tubing whatsoever. And I, I'm not really wasn't part of sales. So I don't know if we were getting a lot of requests for it or not, but we did get this one opportunity in particular. It came to us through an outside sales rep through another company we had a joint venture with. And we found this customer who was having trouble with their supplier. They weren't able to meet the demand or, or whatever their, their problem was, but it was a big opportunity and, and we wanted to take a chance. So management, you know, looked at it and they, they took a gamble and really went after the business hard. And, you know, for my, my part in the whole thing, I was a process engineer on the floor doing a lot of stuff and some tooling design. So when they decided to go after it, ultimately it was me and some, some other people on the team that had to figure out how to make it. And, and like I said, we, we didn't even have a braider or anything. So the, the starting point for us was we got to get a braider didn't know anything about them. So we, we got a braider and we started doing just different experiments. You know, we, we tried a few different TPUs and, you know, different brands. We, we didn't really know what, what to do with the core. So we were trying different materials for that. Eventually we found a combination that, that worked and worked well because, you know, a big part of the braided tubing is that you have to get the core out at the end. It's just a temporary manufacturing aid. So we did that, made samples, the customer was happy, gave us some production runs. And then at, you know, after a while, it just blew up. And as you mentioned that, you know, now we have, we had to build a whole second clean room in another facility, not far down the road in Connecticut. And over there right now we have four extrusion lines, almost 50 braiders. There's more braiders on order. We have another extruder on order from, from you guys and you know, I think right now we're pumping out about 400,000 feet of this, this specific tubing a week, which is close to 20 million feet a year. Wow. You, you mentioned about the number of braiders compared to the number 
of extruders. Tell tell our listeners and so for some of the folks that aren't aware of that ratio of how many braiders per extruder extruders for high pressure braided tubing or for braided tubing and why that is. Yeah, bra- braiders are kind of deceiving because if you actually look at one while it's running, it looks like it's going a million miles an hour, but it's really only making, you know, you're, you're making less than a hundred feet an hour. Whereas an extrusion line, you, you're talking, you could go 50, a hundred, you know, there's extrusion lines that go, you know, more than 500 feet a minute. So mm-hmm. in order to, to braid enough, you need way more braiders than you do extruders. That's unfortunate for us, but <laughs> no, that's right. Thanks for sharing that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about clean rooms. I know that for the production of extrusions, medical extrusions and sub-assemblies or finished devices for interventional applications, it's usually performed in a, in a clean room environment. But R and D extrusions or R and D prototypes for, for catheters and sub-assemblies are often performed in a less stringent environment, sometimes referred to as a white room. Talk, tell us a little bit about your clean room strategy, because you kind of go beyond that for for what you do in R and D and production. Yeah, we you know, ten years ago or so, we only had a white room. There was no clean room, and we did get into more of those assemblies and and secondary operations. So then the need arose. We we built a, a clean room that was actually classed as a class eight, you know, we started doing our internal testing with the particular testing and you have to have outside vendors come and certify it. And once, you know, once that happened, we decided, Hey, our extrusion room actually tests pretty, pretty well. And without very much additional work, we were able to classify our extrusion as a class nine clean room, as well as the the Connecticut, the the braiding facility Mm -hmm. as a clean room. So we're, we're currently doing all of our manufacturing in clean rooms. Yeah, interesting. And R&D. So well, no, yeah, our, our R&D at the moment is being done in the same, you know, the same production environment. We do, we are in the process of building a, what would be a fourth clean room to the company in, in the Rhode Island plant that's going to have, it's going to be dedicated to R&D. And that, that'll also be a class nine clean room. Okay. We actually that- have... We have some equipment on order from, from you for that as well. Oh, great. Does that allow you to, to transition from R and D to V and V and production quicker to have that both of them in a, in a clean room environment? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's convenient. It's better for everything because the, the environment's just more controlled. It's cleaner. I don't know. It's, it's just a, a, a better environment to extrude yeah. and you don't have to worry about you know, packaging and, and different things where some of the customers, you know, they might not have a requirement that says, oh, it has to be made here, but they might have a requirement that says it has to be packaged in a clean room. So, you know, if you're making it in a clean room anyway, right on through, it makes that more seamless. Right. Okay. Good point. Let's wrap up our conversation to, to talk a little bit about how you leverage the synergies between high performance solutions and proterial cables, fine wire and cable assemblies technologies for developing single use endoscopes. Yeah. So, you know, Hitachi proterial now proterial has been supplying 
fine wire and and actually camera assemblies as well to the endoscope OEMs for for a while and and we have some endoscope customers where we're supplying extrusions so naturally it's a good fit and we're able to get access to their customers that we might not have before and they they have a a presence overseas as well because like i said they're they're supplying you know their cables pre-assembled on cameras already to a lot of the oems okay. so we've had a few projects that we've we've worked together on does that often involve multi-lumen extrusions for different working channels and cameras and fiber optics and such yeah i would say it's it's more common to have a you know a braided a braided shaft is a part of the assembly. That's the most common. But we, you know, we have one project we, we worked on with uh, with the the wire and cable division where they actually supplied a a mic, micro twin axe, I believe it was. And there's like three pairs of them, and they're they go into a, a tube that also has a working channel. So that that was a kind of a collaboration that we did with them, or okay. or currently do. Right. Interesting. Norb, this has been a good conversation. I appreciate your time and, and you, you know, the time that you walk through the capabilities and uh, talking about multi-lumen and the clean room and your your collaboration with the Proterial on endoscopy. It's been a great conversation. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to MedEx, the medical extrusion podcast presented by U.S. Extruders. Please subscribe to make sure you're getting the latest episodes. All links are available in the show notes.